week before last, we started on Hebrews and we got through chapter 1. So tonight we'll get into chapter 2. Sort of a recap of chapter 1. First off, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. It is not written to Gentiles. So it assumes that the audience understands a bunch of stuff about Scripture. Whereas, for example, most of Paul's letters, which are written to Gentiles, assumes that the audience doesn't know much about Scripture. So he goes into long explanations of things in his letters that do not happen here in Hebrews. I am of the opinion that Paul wrote the letter to Hebrews, but it's unsigned, so nobody knows for sure. It sounds kind of like Paul. So anyway, what we started off with in chapter 1 is that Yeshua is the heir of all things, and that's in chapter 1, verse 2. These last days he has spoken to us by his Son. He, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Then he goes through a riff in chapter 1 of explaining why Yeshua is not an angel, and he is, in fact, higher than the angels. And he does that by virtue of quoting from several psalms, most notably Psalm 1. So now we're down to the end of chapter 1, and I'm going to pick it up at verse 14, because 14, I think, should actually be part of chapter 2. So I'm at 114. Are not they all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? They are the angels. So the they he's talking about there are angels. Now, we started off in the beginning of chapter 1 saying that he is the heir to everything. So now in verse 14, he says, Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we have inheritance, inheritance. At the beginning of chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, we're talking about inheritance. And Yeshua, being the heir of God, is the owner of everything. But now we have those who are going to inherit salvation. Well, that's not Yeshua. Yeshua is the heir. He's got everything. He doesn't need to inherit salvation. So those who are inheriting salvation must then mean those to whom the letter is addressed and, as we'll get a little farther on, in fact, potentially all of humanity. So we're talking inheritance, inheritance. And the argument that's going to be advanced in the book of Hebrews is Yeshua is a son of Adam. We are sons of Adam. Yeshua is the heir. We as sons of Adam are his brothers. And therefore, as his brothers, we will have the right to adoption and joining the kingdom of God and the family of God. And then we will become also fellow heirs. That's where this is all going. So now we get down to chapter 2. So let me start at uh, 114 again and just read a little bit here. Are they not all ministering spirits set out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels 
proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Right, let's go back and unpack that. First off, the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Okay, this drifting away is the story of Israel. Because what happens to Israel is they start off, you know, with Abraham. And Abraham has a relationship with God. And God talks to Abraham. And they get a covenant. And God talks to Isaac and Jacob and so forth. And God then talks to Moses. And Moses takes them out of Egypt and delivers them from slavery. They see that God does signs and miracles. They hear the very voice of God at the foot of the mountain. Yet, 40 days later, they have drifted away and made a golden calf. And the biblical metaphor for that, which is all over the Old Testament, is they forgot God. Now, they didn't forget God as in, gee, we didn't remember that God exists. They simply ceased to follow God. And they followed other gods, they drifted away, and so forth. And the metaphor for that is they forgot me, as God says in the prophets. Me they forgot, although I was a husband to them, etc., So Paul is talking to Hebrews. And the whole story of Israel is a continual drifting away. God sends a prophet, jerks them up by the stacking swivel, sends them into exile, and everything gets straightened out for a while, and then they drift away again. So Paul is speaking to Hebrews who know their own history. So he's saying, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And what we have heard is now the subject of verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, who's the angel? Moses. Because biblically, all angel means is messenger. Now, in 21st century America, we think of angels as being these beings with wings and all that kind of stuff, swords of flaming fire, etc., etc. Biblically, it simply means messenger. So Moses was God's messenger, and the message he declared was the Torah, and it did prove to be reliable. The Torah is reliable, and every transgression or disobedience of the Torah received a just retribution. That's what for example, the book of Numbers is all about. As they're stomping through the wilderness, they go into rebellion, they go into complaining and murmuring, and Moses calls on God, and God sends down fire, he sends fire to serpents, he does all sorts of stuff to punish them. And the kings of Israel, as they transgress the Torah, what happens is God sends prophets, jerks them up straight, and sends them on. So the message declared by angels has proven to be reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So what he's saying is that the salvation that is going to be declared by Yeshua is greater than the salvation that was declared by Moses. And if the salvation declared by Moses is so reliable, how much more then 
can we not neglect the salvation declared by Yeshua? That's the argument he's making. So, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and that by the Lord in New Testament speak is Yeshua. So it was declared first by the Lord, Yeshua, and it was attested to by those who heard. In other words, Yeshua spoke, words were attested to by those who wrote the gospel in the book of Acts. So his words were witnesses, by the way, most of whom are still alive today at the time of the writing of this book. So it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So as Yeshua walked the earth, he did things like healing people and casting out demons and raising the dead and so forth. So God validated the message that Yeshua was speaking by signs and wonders and miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now that is not the Holy Spirit, that is gifts of the Holy Spirit. Difference. The Holy Spirit falls on you, and of course in that process you typically do get gifts. But people can get gifts of the Spirit without falling on the ground, speaking in tongues, and all that kind of stuff. You can get gifts of the Holy Spirit with no manifestation other than the gift itself. On down to verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. All right, ding, 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 ding. Remember now, up at the beginning of verse 1, he is the heir to all things. We inherit salvation. But we are speaking of the world to come, which in Revelation speak is the new heaven and the new earth. So, for example, when we were in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, what Paul says in Ephesians is the Holy Spirit is your earnest, your guarantee, your seal, that you have a place in the world to come. You have an inheritance, but you do not have possession of your inheritance at this point. So what Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, is saying here is, I am speaking of the world to come and the inheritance that he is going to receive and the inheritance we are going to receive is in the world to come. He has gone to great lengths to say that angels are not heirs. They are ministers of God. And so what we're talking about when we're talking about inheritance is we're talking about Yeshua. He has an inheritance because he's the son. And now we are talking about those who are to inherit salvation, which is us. And the inheritance that we have is in the world to come. And angels don't have an inheritance. I mean, they, they may still cease to exist and they may still do stuff, but they are not heirs. In other words, people are designed to live on earth, angels are not. So now let's do it in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and somewhere is Psalm 8, and we'll go there in just a minute. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, there is a misquotation here. So let's go to Psalm 8, which is what this is being quoted from, and we'll pick that up at verse 3. So Psalm 8, verse 3. 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on the earth. Now, that reads very differently than what I just read in Hebrews, verse 7 in Hebrews. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. That for a little while is not in Psalm 8. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is Psalm 8 refers to the Messiah. And the time that he walked as a man was for a little while. In other words, he was lower than the angels for a little while, but then he was crucified, died, rose from the dead, ascended on high, and he is no longer lower than the angels. That's what that for a little while connotes. Let's go to actual Psalm 8. Pick it up at 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Notice there's no for a little while in there. Interesting. All right, so I'm in King Jimmy, verse 6. But in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor. And there's a footnote. Some versions have for a little while, some don't. It's a version difference in the Greek. There are several different Greek manuscripts. King Jimmy comes from the Texas Receptus. English Standard comes from what's called the majority text. So what's happening in the majority text is the idea that this Yeshua is only lower than the angels for a little while. In Psalm 8, that's not mentioned. And if you read Psalm 8, what Psalm 8 is talking about is Adam. Because who got dominion over the earth and over the cattle and over the birds of the air and over the fish of the sea? Adam did. So Psalm 8 is talking about Adam, except it throws in, verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And the son of man is messianic code speak. Yeshua will call himself the Son of Man. He will be called the Son of Man. So the idea that the Son of Man is also in in Psalm 8 shows that you have dominion over the earth given to Adam, but it's also to be given to the last Adam. Scripture is silent on our status vis-a-vis the angels in the new heaven and the new earth. It just doesn't say. And this is genealogy now. You can do with this whatever you like. My perspective is angels are designed to be spiritual beings. Humans are designed to be physical beings. And when we fell, we messed up our ability to connect to God in the way he designed us to connect. We're designed to be transducers, which is to say we are designed to be connected to God spiritually and to use our hands and feet and mouth and so forth physically on the earth in God's service. He gave us hands and feet and all that kind of stuff 
and we can manipulate matter. That's what we're designed to do. But we were designed to do it in the service of God. When we ate of the wrong fruit, we messed up that spiritual connection, which I am suggesting is why angels get involved now, because what we were designed to do no longer works properly. So in the new heaven and the new earth, I am assuming that that connection is going to work like it was designed to work. Therefore, I have no idea what our relationship is to angels at that point. Because we're designed to be physical beings, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a new physical heaven and earth. We will then be doing what we're designed to do. So the angels are doing what they're designed to do, and we're doing what we're designed to do. I'm not sure what interaction there's going to be. That's all speculation, however. Scripture is silent. So do with that whatever you think is good. Ignore it if you like. I just don't know what else to do with it. You've got two kinds of angels. You've got good angels and bad angels. And what it says here in Hebrews is they are to be ministering spirits to those who are to inherit salvation. So they are, in fact, to keep us moving towards salvation. They are also evil angels, fallen angels, whatever you want to call them. And what they are trying to do, at least it appears, is thwart God's plan of salvation for us. So in that sense, they become our enemies. Now, the only clear interaction that we have in Scripture between good angels and bad angels and people is in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, what happens is Daniel is praying, and God dispatches Gabriel to answer his prayer. And Gabriel takes 21 days to get there because on his way he hit the prince of Persia, who is an angelic being of some description, and it took him 21 days with the help of Michael to burn through that interference and finally get to Daniel to answer his prayer. We also have Job, where Satan himself is contending God over Job. Getting urged back on the right path is not always gentle or painless. So the idea that it's a good angel that is dealing with you doesn't necessarily mean you're going to enjoy the process. In fact, the signature reaction in the Old Testament to someone who meets an angelic being is he goes down like a sack of rocks. He instantly loses his knees and probably has to go change his toga. The spirit and angels are talked of separately. Angels get sent, but Yeshua sends the spirit on those who follow him. Remember John 17, he says, it's good that I go, because until I go, the Comforter cannot come. And he's the power source of God. So, for example, when you exhibit gifts of the Spirit, and God's power flows through your hands. In the Old Testament, especially early books, and if you pay attention, it's obvious, in the Old Testament, the barrier between the physical and the spiritual is very porous. And what happens is people are walking along and they'll talk to somebody and the conversation will go along for a while and all of a sudden there'll be a mental switch and the human in there realizes that he's not talking to another human. Commander of the Lord's host, the three people that show up to Abraham, Manoah, when his wife meets the man in the field and they talk to him and all of a sudden he brings down fire and goes up into the overhead and Manoah, oh, wow, 
So that happens all over the Old Testament. And in all of those instances, the angel is physically indistinguishable from a man. They look just like men. They talk just like men. They walk just like men. You know, walks like a duck, etc. Looks just like men. But at some point, there's a shift. And when that shift happens, the actual human in the story realizes that he's talking to a supernatural being of some kind. The Holy Spirit and angels are two different entities. If you're a Trinitarian like I am, Holy Spirit is God, Yeshua is God, Jehovah is God, all one being. That's a different being from the angels. He will comfort, he will bring all things to memory, probably when you need it. So certainly he is active in your life, but he's not an angel. So now let's rip through verse 5 here. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And again, I made the point of this for a little while is in some versions of the New Testament and not in others. Uh, and for those that it is in, the obvious implication there is while Yeshua was a man, he was for a time lower than the angels, but once he was raised from the dead, he is now above the angels. We went to Psalm 8, and Psalm 8, with the exception of, in verse 4, that the Son of Man that you care for him, most of that refers to Adam. Now, continuing with verse 8 in Hebrews. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Yeshua, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now in your King Jimmy, in verse 9, do you have for a little while there or not? Mine does have a footnote. Takes you back to verse 7. So, what the writer of Hebrews, however, is saying is everything is to be put in subjection under him, but that has not yet happened. Will happen in the future. But he has been crowned with glory and honor, and because of his suffering and death, he might taste death for everyone. You've all been through this rift before, but I've got a couple of new folks here. The earth was put under man's dominion. That's what Psalm 8 says, and that's what Genesis 1 and 2 say. When we messed up, it's sort of like we locked the keys in the trunk. God, by policy, has decided not to take dominion away from someone once he gives it. But we have a problem in that we are being used by Satan instead of being used by God like we're supposed to be. So in order to get the keys out of the trunk, they have to be taken by a man. In other words, a man has to go in and get the keys to the place. Which is why Yeshua has to be born of a woman. Because being born of a woman, he is human. Which means that he qualifies to have dominion over the place. But being also God, he is now able to ascend on high and legitimately take dominion over the place as a son of Adam. Lots of places where that gets said, one of them is that the thief comes into the sheepfold over the gate, and the only way into the sheepfold is through the gate. 
Well, the gate is the womb of a woman. The only legitimate way to come into the world is through the womb of a woman. And anybody that comes in in any other way is a thief and a liar and a murderer. So Satan is trying to come in over the fence. Yeshua comes in by the proper gate. And being a man himself now is able to have dominion. Legitimately. God doesn't have to say, oh, no, 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 no. You screwed it up. You don't have dominion anymore. No. We continue to have dominion, but now he is a man, and so he can take dominion, and by his sacrificial death, his death backs out the death that Adam caused all of us to experience. So when Adam ate of the fruit, what happened is Adam became mortal wasn't designed to be mortal. He became mortal when he ate of the fruit. Yeshua then goes ahead and dies. He does not have to die. He chooses to die. And that death then backs out the curse of mortality that fell upon Adam. So in the new heaven and the new earth, when we get a resurrection body, those bodies will be immortal like they were designed to be. Hebrews verse 2.10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. What is that one origin? They are all children of Adam. So what it's saying there is, The one who sanctifies, Yeshua, is a child of Adam, and the ones who are sanctified are also children of Adam. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And those are all quotes I will tell of your name to my brothers is Psalm 22:22, And then I will put my trust in him lots of places. Psalm 18:2, Isaiah, so forth. And then behold, I and the children God has given me is from Isaiah 8, 8. So the whole point here is Yeshua is a son of Adam. We are sons of Adam's. He is not ashamed to call us brothers because we all are sons of Adam. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is going to take a while to unpack. I will do it briefly, just so I can get through the chapter, but next time we're probably going to start here. The whole point is... We are all mortal. We have been mortal since Adam. Nobody knows what happens after death. It is the great unknown. So the fear of death is the thing that gives Satan his power. Remember I said that Satan works from the outside in, God works from the inside out. So Satan has access to your body, God has access to your spirit. And What Satan, who has access to your body, is able to do is kill you. And so what he does is he enslaves you through fear of death. That's what that's saying. Verse 16. 
For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now this is written to Hebrews. So the offspring of Abraham is you guys. And he's saying that he, Yeshua, doesn't help angels. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We're going to go next into a riff on Psalm 110 which is a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's going to take us an entire hour all by itself. So what this is all saying is we started off that he is the heir of everything. We then differentiated him from angels. We then said that we are fellow heirs and the salvation he has purchased is for us. And the way he purchased it for us is becoming one of us. And then he died and was raised from the dead, and he provided a sacrifice for our sins, which is his own blood. We haven't gotten there yet, but that, we're going to get there. That's going to come up in a bit. So the whole idea up until this point is Yeshua is the Son of God. He is the heir. He is higher than the angels. He is our brother. And because he is our brother, he and his sacrifice are sufficient to purchase our salvation. Furthermore, the salvation that he promises was attested to first by himself, then by the witnesses who walked with him, then by God by signs and wonders, and then finally by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we, the Hebrews, believe that the message given by Moses, who was a messenger, is trustworthy and true, how much more then is the message given by the Son of God? And if we don't neglect the message given by Moses, we dare not neglect the message given by Yeshua. Two hours, just summarized. <laughs>